This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 29. Naples. In Quarantine at Last. Annunciation. Ascent of Mount Vesuvius. A Two-Cent Community. The Black Side of Neapolitan Character. Monkish Miracles. Ascent of Mount Vesuvius Continued. The Stranger and the Hackman. Night View of Naples from the Mountainside. Ascent of Mount Vesuvius Continued. The ship is lying here in the harbor of Naples, quarantined. She has been here several days, and will remain several more. We that came by rail from Rome have escaped this misfortune. Of course no one is allowed to go on board the ship, or come ashore from her. She is a prison now. The passengers probably spend the long, blazing days looking out from under the awnings at Vesuvius and the beautiful city, and in swearing. Think of ten days of this sort of pastime. We go out every day in a boat, and request them to come ashore. It soothes them. We lie ten steps from the ship, and tell them how splendid the city is, and how much better the hotel fare is here than anywhere else in Europe, and how cool it is, and what frozen continents of ice-cream there are, and what a time we are having cavorting about the country and sailing to the islands in the bay. This tranquilizes them. Ascent of Vesuvius. I shall remember our trip to Vesuvius for many a day, partly because of its sightseeing experiences, but chiefly on account of the fatigue of the journey. Two or three of us had been resting ourselves among the tranquil and beautiful scenery of the island of Ischia, eighteen miles out in the harbor, for two days. We called it resting, but I do not remember now what the resting consisted of. For when we got back to Naples we had not slept for forty-eight hours. We were just about to go to bed early in the evening and catch up on some of the sleep we had lost, when we heard of this Vesuvius expedition. There was to be eight of us in the party, and we were to leave Naples at midnight. We laid in some provisions for the trip, engaged carriages to take us to Annunciation, and then moved about the city to keep awake till twelve. We got away punctually and in the course of an hour and a half arrived at the town of Annunciation. Annunciation is the very last place under the sun. In other towns in Italy the people lie around quietly and wait for you to ask them a question or do some overt act that can be charged for, but in Annunciation they have lost even that fragment of delicacy. They seize a lady's shawl from a chair and hand it to her and charge a penny. They open a carriage door and charge for it, shut it when you get out, and charge for it. They help you to take off a duster, two cents. Brush your clothes, and make them worse than they were before, two cents. Smile upon you, two cents. Bow, with a lick-spittle smirk, hat in hand, two cents. They volunteer all information, such as that the mules will arrive presently, two cents. Warm day, sir, two cents. Take you four hours to make the ascent, two cents. And so they go. They crowd you, infest you, swarm about you, and sweat and smell offensively, and look sneaking and mean and obsequious. There is no office too degrading for them to perform for money. I have had no opportunity to find out anything about the upper classes by my own observation, but from what I hear said about them, I judge that what they lack in one or two of the bad traits the canai have, 
they make up in one or two others that are worse. How the people beg! Many of them very well dressed, too. I said I knew nothing against the upper classes by personal observation. I must recall it. I had forgotten. What I saw their bravest and their fairest do last night, the lowest multitude that could be scraped up out of the purlieus of Christendom would blush to do, I think. They assembled by hundreds and even thousands in the great theatre of San Carlo to do what? Why, simply, to make fun of an old woman, to deride, to hiss, to jeer at an actress they once worshipped, but whose beauty is faded now, and whose voice has lost its former richness. Everybody spoke of the rare sport there was to be. They said the theatre would be crammed, because Fresolini was going to sing. It was said she could not sing well now, but then the people liked to see her anyhow. And so we went. And every time the woman sang they hissed and laughed, the whole magnificent house, and as soon as she left the stage they called her on again with applause. Once or twice she was encored five and six times in succession, and received with hisses when she appeared, and discharged with hisses and laughter when she had finished, then instantly encored and insulted again. And how the high-born knaves enjoyed it! White-kidded gentlemen and ladies laughed till the tears came, and clapped their hands in very ecstasy when that unhappy old woman would come meekly out for the sixth time, with uncomplaining patience, to meet a storm of hisses. It was the cruelest exhibition, the most wanton, the most unfeeling. The singer would have conquered an audience of American rowdies by her brave, unflinching tranquillity, for she answered encore after encore, and smiled and bowed pleasantly, and sang the best she possibly could, and went bowing off through all the jeers and hisses, without ever losing countenance or temper. And surely, in any other land than Italy, her sex and her helplessness must have been an ample protection to her. She could have needed no other. Think what a multitude of small souls were crowded into that theatre last night. If the manager could have filled his theatre with Neapolitan souls alone, without the bodies, he could not have cleared less than ninety millions of dollars. What traits of character must a man have to enable him to help three thousand miscreants to hiss and jeer and laugh at one friendless old woman and shamefully humiliate her? He must have all the vile, mean traits there are. My observation persuades me—I do not like to venture beyond my own personal observation—that the upper classes of Naples possess those traits of character. Otherwise they may be very good people. I cannot say. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. In this city of Naples they believe in and support one of the wretchedest of all the religious impostors one can find in Italy the miraculous liquefaction of the blood of St. Januarius. Twice a year the priests assemble all the people at the cathedral, and get out this vial of clotted blood, and let them see it slowly dissolve and become a liquid. And every day for eight days this dismal farce is repeated, while the priests go among the crowd and collect money for the exhibition. The first day the blood liquefies in forty-seven minutes. The church is crammed, then, and time must be allowed the collectors to get around. After that it liquefies a little quicker, and a little quicker, every day, 
as the houses grow smaller, till on the eighth day, with only a few dozens present to see the miracle, it liquefies in four minutes. And here, also, they used to have a grand procession of priests, citizens, soldiers, sailors, and the high dignitaries of the city government, once a year, to shave the head of a made-up Madonna, a stuffed and painted image, like a milliner's dummy, whose hair miraculously grew and restored itself every twelve months. They still kept up this shaving procession as late as four or five years ago. It was a source of great profit to the church that possessed the remarkable effigy, and the ceremony of the public barbering of her was always carried out with the greatest possible eclat and display. The more, the better, because the more excitement there was about it, the larger the crowds it drew, and the heavier the revenues it produced. But at last a day came when the Pope and his servants were unpopular in Naples, and the city government stopped the Madonna's annual show. There we have two specimens of these Neapolitans, two of the silliest possible frauds which half the population religiously and faithfully believed, and the other half either believed also or else said nothing about, and thus lent themselves to the support of the imposture. I am very well satisfied to think the whole population believed in those poor cheap miracles, a people who want two cents every time they bow to you, and who abuse a woman, are capable of it, I think." Ascent of Vesuvius continued. These Neapolitans always ask four times as much money as they intend to take, but if you give them what they first demand, they feel ashamed of themselves for aiming so low, and immediately ask more. When money is to be paid and received, there is always some vehement jawing and gesticulating about it. One cannot buy and pay for two cents' worth of clams without trouble and a quarrel. One course in a two-horse carriage costs a franc, uh, that is law, but the hackman always demands more, on some pretense or other, and if he gets it he makes a new demand. It is said that a stranger took a one-horse carriage for a course, tariff half a franc. He gave the man five francs by way of experiment. He demanded more, and received another franc. Again he demanded more, and got a franc. Demanded more, and it was refused. He grew vehement was again refused, and became noisy. The stranger said, "'Well, give me the seven francs again, and I will see what I can do.' And when he got them, he handed the hackman half a franc, and he immediately asked for two cents to buy a drink with. It may be thought that I am prejudiced. Perhaps I am. I would be ashamed of myself, if I were not." Ascent of Vesuvius continued. Well, as I was saying, we got our mules and horses after an hour and a half of bargaining with the population of Annunciation, and started sleepily up the mountain, with a vagrant at each mule's tail who pretended to be driving the brute along, but was really holding on and getting himself dragged up instead. I made slow headway at first, but I began to get dissatisfied at the idea of paying my minion five francs to hold my mule back by the tail and keep him from going up the hill and so I discharged him. I got along faster then. We had one magnificent picture of Naples from a high point on the mountainside. We saw nothing but the gas-lamps, of course, two-thirds of a circle skirting the great bay, a necklace of diamonds glinting up through the darkness from the remote distance, less brilliant than the stars overhead, but more softly, richly beautiful. And over all the great city the lights crossed and recrossed each other, in many and many a sparkling line and curve. And back of the town, far around and abroad over the miles of level Campania, 
were scattered rows and circles and clusters of lights, all glowing like so many gems, and marking where a score of villages were sleeping. About this time the fellow who was hanging on to the tail of the horse in front of me, and practicing all sorts of unnecessary cruelty upon the animal, got kicked some fourteen rods, and this incident, together with the fairy spectacle of the lights far in the distance, made me serenely happy, and I was glad I started to Vesuvius. Ascent of Mount Vesuvius continued. This subject will be excellent matter for a chapter, and to-morrow or next day I will write it. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 Ascent of Mount Vesuvius continued beautiful view at dawn, less beautiful view in the back streets. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. Dwellings a hundred feet high, a motley procession, bill of fare for a peddler's breakfast, princely salaries, ascent of Vesuvius continued, an average of prices, the wonderful blue grotto, visit to celebrated localities in the Bay of Naples, the poisoned grotto of the dog, a petrified sea of lava. Ascent of Mount Vesuvius continued. The summit reached. Description of the crater. Descent of Vesuvius. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. See Naples and die. Well, I do not know that one would necessarily die after merely seeing it, but to attempt to live there might turn out a little differently. To see Naples as we saw it in the early dawn from far up on the side of Vesuvius is to see a picture of wonderful beauty. At that distance its dingy buildings looked white, and so, rank on rank of balconies, windows and roofs, they piled themselves up from the blue ocean, till the colossal castle of St. Elmo topped the grand white pyramid, and gave the picture symmetry, emphasis, and completeness. And when its lilies turned to roses, when it blushed under the sun's first kiss, it was beautiful beyond all description. One might well say, then, see Naples, and die. The frame of the picture was charming itself. In front the smooth sea, a vast mosaic of many colors, the lofty island swimming in a dreamy haze in the distance. At our end of the city the stately double peak of Vesuvius, and its strong black ribs and seams of lava stretching down to the limitless level Campania a green carpet that enchants the eye, and leads it on and on, past clusters of trees, and isolated houses, and snowy villages, until it shreds out in a fringe of mist and general vagueness far away. It is from the hermitage, there on the side of Vesuvius, that one should see Naples and die. But do not go within the walls and look at it in detail. That takes away some of the romance of the thing. The people are filthy in their habits and this makes filthy streets and breeds disagreeable sights and smells. There never was a community so prejudiced against the cholera as these Neapolitans are, but they have good reason to be. The cholera generally vanquishes a Neapolitan when it seizes him, because, you understand, before the doctor can dig through the dirt and get at the disease, the man dies. The upper classes take a sea-bath every day, and are pretty decent. The streets are generally about wide enough for one wagon and how they do swarm with people. It is Broadway repeated in every street, in every court, in every alley. Such masses, such throngs, such multitudes of hurrying, bustling, struggling humanity. We never saw the like of it, hardly even in New York, I think. 
there are seldom any sidewalks, and when there are, they are not often wide enough to pass a man on without caroming on him. So everybody walks in the street, and where the street is wide enough, carriages are forever dashing along. Why a thousand people are not run over and crippled every day is a mystery that no man can solve. But if there is an eighth wonder in the world, it must be the dwelling-houses of Naples. I honestly believe a good majority of them are a hundred feet high, and the solid brick walls are seven feet through. You go up nine flights of stairs before you get to the first floor. No, not nine, but there or thereabouts. There is a little bird-cage of an iron railing, in front of every window clear away up, 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 among the eternal clouds, where the roof is, and there is always somebody looking out of every window, people of ordinary size looking out from the first floor, people a shade smaller from the second, people that look a little smaller yet from the third, and from thence upward they grow smaller and smaller by a regularly graduated diminution till the folks in the topmost windows seem more like birds, in an uncommonly tall martin-box, than anything else. The perspective of one of these narrow cracks of the streets, with its rows of tall houses stretching away till they come together in the distance like railway tracks, its clothes-lines crossing over at all altitudes and waving their bannered raggedness over the swarms of people below, and the white-dressed women perched in balcony railings all the way from the pavement up to the heavens, a perspective like that is really worth going into Neapolitan details to see. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. Naples, with its immediate suburbs, contains 625,000 inhabitants, but I am satisfied it covers no more ground than an American city of 150,000. It reaches up into the air infinitely higher than three American cities, though, and there is where the secret of it lies. I will observe here, in passing, that the contrast between opulence and poverty, and magnificence and misery, are more frequent and more striking in Naples than in Paris, even. One must go to the Bois de Boulogne to see fashionable dressing, splendid equipages, and stunning liveries and to the Faubourg Saint-Antoine to see vice, misery, hunger, rags, dirt. But in the thoroughfares of Naples these things are all mixed together. Naked boys of nine years and the fancy-dressed children of luxury, shreds and tatters and brilliant uniforms, jackass carts and state carriages, beggars, princes and bishops jostle each other in every street. At six o'clock every evening, all Naples turns out to drive on the Riviere di Chiaja, whatever that may mean, and for two hours one may stand there and see the motliest and the worst mixed procession go by that ever eyes beheld. Princes! There are more princes than policemen in Naples. The city is infested with them. Princes, who live up seven flights of stairs and don't own any principalities, will keep a carriage and go hungry. And clerks, mechanics, milliners and strumpets will go without their dinners, and squander the money on a hack-ride in the Chiaja. The rag-tag and rubbish of the city stack themselves up to the number of twenty or thirty on a rickety little go-cart hauled by a donkey not much bigger than a cat, and they drive in the Chiaja. Dukes and bankers, in sumptuous carriages, and with gorgeous drivers and footmen, turn out also, and so the furious procession goes. For two hours rank and wealth and obscurity and poverty clatter along side by side in the wild procession, and then go home serene, happy, covered with glory. 
I was looking at a magnificent marble staircase in the King's Palace the other day, which it was said cost five million francs, and I suppose it did cost half a million, maybe. I felt as if it must be a fine thing to live in a country where there was such comfort and such luxury as this. And then I stepped out, musing, and almost walked over a vagabond who was eating his dinner on the curbstone, a piece of bread and a bunch of grapes. When I found that this mustang was clerking in a fruit establishment—he had the establishment along with him in a basket—at two cents a day, and that he had no palace at home where he lived, I lost some of my enthusiasm concerning the happiness of living in Italy. This naturally suggests to me a thought about wages here. Lieutenants in the army get about a dollar a day, and common soldiers a couple of cents. I only know one clerk. He gets four dollars a month. Printers get six dollars and a half a month, but I have heard of a foreman who gets thirteen. To be growing suddenly and violently rich as this man is naturally makes him a bloated aristocrat. The airs he puts on are insufferable. And, speaking of wages, reminds me of prices of merchandise. In Paris you pay twelve dollars a dozen for Jovin's best kid gloves. Gloves of about as good quality sell here at three or four dollars a dozen. You pay five and six dollars apiece for fine linen shirts in Paris. Here, and in Leghorn, you pay two and a half. In Marseilles you pay forty dollars for a first-class dress coat made by a good tailor, but in Leghorn you can get a full-dress suit for the same money. Here you get handsome business suits at from ten to twenty dollars, and in Leghorn you can get an overcoat for fifteen dollars that would cost you seventy in New York. Fine kid boots are worth eight dollars in Marseilles and four dollars here. Lyon velvets rank higher in America than those of Genoa, yet the bulk of Lyon velvets you buy in the States are made in Genoa, and imported into Lyon, where they receive the Lyon stamp, and are then exported to America. You can buy enough velvet in Genoa for twenty-five dollars to make a five-hundred-dollar cloak in New York, so the ladies tell me. Of course these things bring me back, by a natural and easy transition, to the ascent of Vesuvius continued. And thus the wonderful blue grotto is suggested to me. It is situated on the island of Capri, twenty-two miles from Naples. We chartered a little steamer and went out there. Of course the police boarded us and put us through a health examination, and inquired into our politics before they would let us land. The airs these little insect governments put on are in the last degree ridiculous. They even put a policeman on board of our boat to keep an eye on us as long as we were in the Capri dominions. They thought we wanted to steal the grotto, I suppose. It was worth stealing. The entrance to the cave is four feet high and four feet wide, and is in the face of a lofty perpendicular cliff, the sea-wall. You enter in small boats, and a tight squeeze it is, too. You cannot go in at all when the tide is up. Once within, you find yourself in an arched cavern about one hundred and sixty feet long, one hundred twenty wide, and about seventy high. How deep it is, no man knows. It goes down to the bottom of the ocean. The waters of this placid subterranean lake are the brightest, loveliest blue that can be imagined. They are as transparent as plate glass, and their coloring would shame the richest sky that ever bent over Italy. No tint could be more ravishing, no luster more superb. Throw a stone into the water, and the myriad of tiny bubbles that are created flash out a brilliant glare like blue theatrical fires. 
dip an oar, and its blade turns to splendid frosted silver, tinted with blue. Let a man jump in, and instantly he is cased in an armor more gorgeous than ever kingly crusader wore. Then we went to Iskaya, but I had already been to that island, and tired myself to death resting a couple of days, and studying human villainy with the landlord of the Grande Sentinelle for a model. So we went to Procida, and from thence to Pozzuoli, where St. Paul landed after he sailed from Samos. I landed at precisely the same spot where St. Paul landed, and so did Dan and the others. It was a remarkable coincidence. St. Paul preached to these people seven days before he started to Rome. Nero's Baths, the ruins of Baiae, the Temple of Serapis, Cumae, where the Cumae Sibyl interpreted the oracles, the Lake Agnano, with its ancient submerged city still visible far down in its depths, these and a hundred other points of interest we examined with critical imbecility, but the Grotto of the Dog claimed our chief attention, because we had heard and read so much about it. Everybody has written about the Grotto del Cane and its poisonous vapors, from Pliny down to Smith, and every tourist has held a dog over its floor by the legs to test the capabilities of the place. The dog dies in a minute and a half, a chicken instantly. As a general thing, strangers who crawl in there to sleep do not get up until they are called, and then they don't either. The stranger that ventures to sleep there takes a permanent contract. I longed to see this grotto. I resolved to take a dog and hold him myself, suffocate him a little, and time him, suffocate him some more, and then finish him. We reached the grotto at about three in the afternoon, and proceeded at once to make the experiments. But now an important difficulty presented itself. We had no dog. Ascent of Vesuvius continued. At the Hermitage we were about fifteen or eighteen hundred feet above the sea, and thus far a portion of the ascent had been pretty abrupt. For the next two miles the road was a mixture. Sometimes the ascent was abrupt, and sometimes it was not. But one characteristic it possessed all the time, without failure, without modification. It was all uncompromisingly and unspeakably infamous. It was a rough, narrow trail, and led over an old lava-flow, a black ocean which was tumbled into a thousand fantastic shapes, a wild chaos of ruin, desolation, and barrenness, a wilderness of billowy upheavals, of furious whirlpools, of miniature mountains rent asunder, of gnarled and knotted, wrinkled and twisted masses of blackness that mimicked branching roots, great vines, trunks of trees, all interlaced and mingled together. And all these weird shapes, all this turbulent panorama, all this stormy, far-stretching waste of blackness, with its thrilling suggestiveness of life, of action, of boiling, surging, furious motion, was petrified, all stricken dead and cold, in the instant of its maddest rioting, fettered, paralyzed, and left to glower at heaven in impotent rage for evermore. Finally we stood in a level, narrow valley, a valley that had been created by the terrific march of some old-time eruption, and on either hand towered the two steep peaks of Vesuvius. The one we had to climb, the one that contains the active volcano, seemed about eight hundred or one thousand feet high, and looked almost too straight up and down for any man to climb, and certainly no mule could climb it with a man on his back. 
Four of these native pirates will carry you to the top in a sedan-chair, if you wish it. But suppose they were to slip and let you fall. Is it likely that you would ever stop rolling? Not this side of eternity, perhaps. We left the mules, sharpened our fingernails, and began the ascent I have been writing about so long, at twenty minutes to six in the morning. The path led straight up a rugged sweep of loose chunks of pumice-stone, and for about every two steps forward we took, we slid back one. It was so excessively steep that we had to stop every fifty or sixty steps, and rest a moment. To see our comrades we had to look very nearly straight up at those above us, and very nearly straight down at those below. We stood on the summit at last. It had taken an hour and fifteen minutes to make the trip. What we saw there was simply a circular crater, a circular ditch, if you please, about two hundred feet deep, and four or five hundred feet wide, whose inner wall was about a half-mile in circumference. In the centre of the great circus ring thus formed was a torn and ragged upheaval a hundred feet high, all snowed over with a sulphur-crust of many and many a brilliant and beautiful colour, and the ditch enclosed this like the moat of a castle, or surrounded it as a little river does a little island, if the simile is better. The sulphur-coating of that island was gaudy in the extreme, all mingled together in the richest confusion were red, blue, brown, black, yellow, white—I do not know that there was a color or shade of a color, or combination of colors unrepresented, and when the sun burst through the morning mists and fired this tinted magnificence, it topped imperial Vesuvius like a jeweled crown. The crater itself, the ditch, was not so variegated in coloring, but yet, in its softness, richness, and unpretentious elegance, it was more charming, more fascinating to the eye. There was nothing loud about its well-bred and well-creased look. Beautiful? One could stand and look down upon it for a week without getting tired of it. It had the semblance of a pleasant meadow, whose slender grasses and whose velvety mosses were frosted with a shining dust and tinted with palest green that deepened gradually to the darkest hue of the orange leaf, and deepened yet again into gravest brown, then faded into orange, then into brightest gold, and culminated in the delicate pink of a new-blown rose, where portions of the meadow had sunk, and where other portions had been broken up like an ice-floe, the cavernous openings of the one, and the ragged upturned edges exposed by the other, were hung with a lace-work of soft-tinted crystals of sulphur that changed their deformities into quaint shapes and figures that were full of grace and beauty. The walls of the ditch were brilliant with yellow banks of sulphur and with lava and pumice-stone of many colors. No fire was visible anywhere, but gusts of sulphurous steam issued silently and invisibly from a thousand little cracks and fissures in the crater, and were wafted to our noses with every breeze. But so long as we kept our nostrils buried in our handkerchiefs, there was small danger of suffocation. Some of the boys thrust long slips of paper down into holes and set them on fire, and so achieved the glory of lighting their cigars by the flames of Vesuvius, and others cooked eggs over fissures in the rocks and were happy. The view from the summit would have been superb but for the fact that the sun could only pierce the mists at long intervals. Thus the glimpses we had of the grand panorama below were only fitful and unsatisfactory. THE DESCENT The descent of the mountain was a labor of only four minutes. 
Instead of stalking down the rugged path we ascended, we chose one which was bedded knee-deep in loose ashes, and ploughed our way with prodigious strides that would almost have shamed the performance of him of the seven-league boots. The Vesuvius of today is a very poor affair compared to the mighty volcano of Kilauea in the Sandwich Islands, but I am glad I visited it. It was well worth it. It is said that during one of the grand eruptions of Vesuvius it discharged massy rocks weighing many tons a thousand feet into the air. Its vast jets of smoke and steam ascended thirty miles towards the firmament, and clouds of its ashes were wafted abroad and fell upon the decks of ships seven hundred and fifty miles at sea. I will take the ashes at a moderate discount, if any one will take the thirty miles of smoke but I do not feel able to take a commanding interest in the whole story by myself. End of chapter 30